I have put in place a zero-tolerance policy for illegal entry uh, on our southwest border. If you cross the border unlawfully, then we will prosecute you. It's that simple. If you smuggle illegal aliens across our border, then we will prosecute you. If you are smuggling a child, then we will prosecute you. And that child may be separated from you as required by law. In June, the Trump administration introduced a zero-tolerance policy for migrants entering our border. Under this policy, if you were caught crossing the border someplace other than a legal entry point, you'd be arrested. If you were with your child, as many people escaping violence in their home countries are, she would be taken from you and housed in a facility you knew nothing about. Sometimes a facility thousands of miles away. This Border Patrol Processing Center there in McAllen, Texas, is kind of the epicenter of all of this uh, family separation debate, where the majority of these uh, families are being separated um, from their kids. Uh, And that's the place uh, which is often called the dog kennel. So uh, you see uh, these kind of chain link uh, fence rooms where people are kind of divided. The parents are put to one side, the kids are taken to another. That's really like a place where people pass through. It's not designed to hold people for a long time. So that's why they have those see-through kind of cages, if you will, where they put parents on one side, kids on the other, so that they can send them in different uh, directions. Kids go to the shelters. The parents are often sent to federal court uh, to face the criminal charges. That same month, Attorney General Jeff Sessions announced the United States would no longer accept fleeing gang violence or domestic violence as reasons for seeking asylum. Outcry fueled advocates to demand the abolition of ICE. Once considered to be a radical stance, now, even mainstream lawmakers join the growing chorus. All right, we're going to turn now to another Democratic lawmaker, Senator Kirsten Gillibrand. She's also got some positions that are even to the left of Bernie Sanders. She wants to get rid of ICE. I don't think ICE today is working as intended. I believe that it has become a deportation force. um, And I think you should separate the criminal justice from the immigration issues. And I think you should reimagine ICE under a new agency with a very different mission and take those two missions out. And so we believe that... We should protect families that need our help, and that is not what ICE is doing today, and that's why I believe you should get rid of it, start over, reimagine it, and build something that actually works. I never thought I'd see the day where dismantling a racist, unjust system like ICE was a position that was considered practical and achievable. But family separation isn't new. In fact, it's as American as apple pie. I'm Bridget Todd. And I'm Eves Jeffcoat. You're listening to Afropunk Solution Sessions. Afropunk is a safe place, a blank space to freak out in, to construct a new reality, to live our lives as we see fit while making sense of the world around us. Here at Afropunk, we have the conversations that matter to us, conversations that lead to solutions. Here's Susan Burton, who we'll hear more from later. Susan works to help formerly incarcerated women re-enter society. She says we ignore the fact that prison has been tearing apart families for hundreds of years. Right now, we look at what's happening at the border. But that stuff has been happening to us for hundreds of years, all the way from slavery up until today. 
And, you know, where is the outcry for the black woman who's incarcerating her child is is separated from her child? Her child is snatched from her arms. My dad who in 1989, he was arrested by the New York Police Department and he was incarcerated uh, for four years. He was charged with attempted murder and he eventually died in prison from AIDS. Sean Saifa Wall is a Black intersex man and advocate for intersex rights. Probably like two or three years ago, my mom gave me a packet, a thick packet, of my dad's letters that he wrote while he was in prison. He wrote to me, he wrote to my mom, he wrote over a thousand letters, one for every day that he was incarcerated. When I read those letters, all these memories started coming back, things that I had suppressed. Because I think to put my life in a context, we're talking about the war on drugs, we're talking about crack flooding inner city communities, destroying like black families. There were a lot of children that ended up in foster care as a result of crack impacting people's families. We're talking about the rapid expansion of the prison industrial complex. <laughs> Does right? it hurt you to say that? It's just like, <laughs> man, you turn sometimes. Like, oh. But, you know, you had the rapid expansion of incarcerating the poor, the black, the most marginalized, the people with mental health issues. My dad existed at the cross-section of all of those. He had mental health issues, he was crack-addicted, he was substance-using, and he was black. When I read those letters, it brought back all these memories that I guess I had suppressed, right? Because I think in that moment, during that time, I was just trying to survive. Saifa's documentary, Letters to an Unborn Son, documents the ways in which the prison system doesn't work. If you care about creating safe communities, prisons aren't doing that. If you care about systems being cost-efficient, prisons are expensive. And if you care about having a country that treats its citizens with basic decency, well, prisons don't do that either. That's something Solution Sessions panelist Paul Butler knows well. My name is Paul Butler, and I represent the people. Paul used to be a prosecutor. Now he's a law professor at Georgetown and author of the book Chokehold, Policing Black Men. At Afropunk Solution Sessions in Atlanta, he talked about locking up people who looked like him in cages for a living. I represented the government in criminal court, and I used that power to put black men in prison, and black women, and poor people, and Latino people. Like a lot of prosecutors, that was pretty much all I did. But Paul isn't a prosecutor anymore. So now I'm no longer about building that system up. I'm about tearing it down. That's what we need to do with our criminal justice system. We need to tear that shit down. Uh, I had to learn the hard way. While living in D.C., Paul was arrested for a crime he didn't commit. I was on a team that was prosecuting a United States senator for public corruption. During the time that I was working in that case, I got arrested and prosecuted for a crime that I didn't commit. It was a stupid little Fred and Barney dispute about a parking space. A neighbor had said that I'd run up to her and pushed her. She was mad at me because 
I was using a parking space that she thought was hers. The thing is, she called the police, and now it's real clear what happens when folks call the police on black people. It seems like we are talking about these viral videos of people of color dealing with calls to police for ordinary, non-criminal things every day. In the past few days, stories surfaced about Native American students attending a college tour reported by a suspicious parent. A black grad student who fell asleep in a common area in her dorm reported by a white fellow grad student. And a group of friends who were detained by police while they were checking out of their Airbnb rental reported by a white neighbor uh, of the homeowner. And the Airbnb guests and their lawyer are calling on Rialto police to hold the caller accountable. Tonight, a controversial call. This woman don't want to let a little girl sell some water. She calling police on an eight-year-old little girl. This woman on the phone with police about an eight-year-old girl she says was loudly selling water outside her apartment for hours. The lady called the police on me because I didn't have a permit. The normal standard for law enforcement right now is if you see something, say something. Pick up the phone and call 911. But there's a court case pending in the Dayton area that could put a chill on that theory. I'm at the uh, Beaver Creek Walmart. There's a uh, gentleman walking around with a gun in the store. Is he got it pulled out? Yeah, he's like pointing at people. Ronald Ritchie made that call in 2014 after seeing John Crawford inside the store. But private citizens linked his audio to surveillance video and said the words don't match the pictures. A judge agreed and ruled there's probable cause for prosecutors to consider charging Ritchie with making false alarms. Police shot Crawford, claiming he refused to drop what turned out to be a pellet gun. Police rolled up, didn't ask any questions, just arrested me. People say, well, didn't you tell them you were a prosecutor? Damn right I did. Cop said, so you probably know this already. You have the right to remain silent. Anything you say can and will be used against you. For Paul, the experience showed him how much privilege he had, but also the limitations of that privilege. Because I could afford to hire the best lawyer in town. Things worked out fine for me because I had a kind of social standing. We made sure the jury knew that I was a lawyer, that I'd gone to Yale. Those kind of things shouldn't matter, but they do. And so I knew how to look like the kind of black man a D.C. jury wouldn't want to send to jail. Things worked out fine for me because I had legal skills. I had literally prosecuted people in the courtroom where I was being prosecuted. And the last reason things worked out fine for me is because I was innocent. But that didn't seem like the most important reason. But what happened was being prosecuted made a man out of me, a black man. You might be wondering how someone like Paul wound up working to put people behind bars in the first place. Part of it is growing up in a beautiful, loving, low-income, all-African-American community in Chicago, Illinois. I grew up there in the 70s and 80s in what Martin Martin Luther King described as the most segregated city he'd ever seen. I remember once riding my bicycle to the library, which was literally across the tracks in the white neighborhood. I was about 12, 13 years old, and when I crossed those tracks, this cop car pulled up alongside me. A white cop rolls down the window and says, is that bicycle yours? And I say, yeah, is that car yours? And I speed away. 
And when I get home, I tell my mom what I'd said to the cop. She spanked me. Don't I know what happens to black boys who talk to the police like that? It was one of those spankings where the mom cries as much as the kid. It turns out that she was exactly right. Literally, during the time that that happened, the police, we now know, were torturing black men. The Chicago police had an off-site location where they attached black men's testicles to electrodes. Uh, They put poison in their noses to try to coerce them into confessing to crimes that they didn't commit. The city of Chicago has paid millions of dollars now uh, to the victims of that kind of atrocious police torture. We begin today with an explosive new report that Chicago police continue to operate a secret compound for detentions and interrogations, often with abusive methods. According to The Guardian, detainees as young as 15 years old have been taken to a nondescript warehouse known as Homan Square. Some are calling it the domestic equivalent of a CIA black site overseas. Prisoners were denied access to their attorneys, beaten, and held for up to 24 hours without any official record of their detention. Brian Jacob Church, who was arrested during Chicago's 2012 anti-NATO protests, said he was shackled to a bench for 17 hours without being read his Miranda rights. When they first arrested us, they took us to this building. Um, we were never booked or we were never processed. Um, I was in I was in Holman Square uh, for about 17 hours, you know, handcuffed to the bench before I was actually finally allowed to see an attorney. At least one victim was found unresponsive in an interrogation room and later pronounced dead. The Guardian says the detainees brought to the Holman site, quote, are most often poor, black, and brown. We'll have more solution sessions after this quick break. I actually went into the prosecutor's office as an undercover brother. I was hoping I could make change from the inside. But what I learned is that the system is too broke to fix. We need radical transformation. Our criminal legal process, I won't say criminal justice system because there's nothing just about it, but our criminal legal process is so broke down We can't think about reform. We have to think about transformation. And I learned that lesson as a prosecutor the hard way. After his arrest, Paul could not continue his work as a prosecutor. He had seen the system from the inside and wanted nothing to do with it. When that jury said not guilty, I could have gone back to the prosecutor's office. But what had happened was so mind-blowing. I didn't feel like doing that work anymore. A lot of things that defendants who I prosecuted had said to me, like the cops lie, like there were people who knew the real deal but they wouldn't come forward, all of that happened in my case. So when I look back, of course I regret it. I regret having to go through that process, but I don't regret it wholly. That prosecution, being prosecuted, being put on trial, It made a man out of me. It made a black man out of me. So Paul became a prison abolitionist, which means that he thinks we need to get rid of prisons altogether. Now, don't get it twisted. This is different from someone who advocates for prison reform. Paul doesn't think changes to the system will meaningfully help. He says we need to abolish prisons entirely. 
Abolition is a part of the struggle for racial justice for black people. It always has been. So when we think about slavery, we didn't talk about reforming slavery. We didn't talk about making the slave masters do better. We talked about abolishing slavery. We think about the old Jim Crow, how right here in this city, the white only, the black only, water fountains, cemeteries, schools. We didn't talk about reforming the old Jim Crow. We talked about abolishing it. So when we think about the new Jim Crow, about how one in three young black men have a criminal case, about how there are more black people in the criminal justice system now than there were slaves in 1850, about how black women are the fastest growing group in prison, about 10% of people who are in prison are old. Do you know that prisons are literally operating assisted living facilities? What kind of shit is that? Assisted living facilities. Those folks, they don't need to be locked up. 80% of the people who are in prison are either mentally ill or addicts. So they don't need punishment, they need treatment. Uh, they need treatment for the therapy of being, for the trauma that is, of being, as almost all of them are, low-income people of color who live in environments where they don't have a chance, where from jump the system was set against them. And so rather than punishing them, uh, what we need to do is to create opportunities for them. You might think that getting rid of prison sounds a little far-fetched, but it just nearly happened. Okay, so in 1972, there was this gay inmate named Juan G. Morales, and he was being prevented from exchanging letters with his lover, who was also in prison. Really? Yeah, this is totally against the rules of what they're supposed to be allowed to do in prison. Okay. So guess what he did? What'd he do? He filed a suit against the prison in federal court, which is kind of a ballsy move. That's pretty bold. Yeah. The judge, James E. Doyle, sided with Morales. In his ruling, he wrote, I am persuaded the institution of prison probably must end. He goes on to compare it to slavery, saying that prison is, quote, as intolerable within the United States as was the institution of slavery, equally brutalizing to all involved, equally toxic to the social system, equally subversive to the brotherhood of man, even more costly by some standards, and probably less rational. Wow. So he really called out that very clear line from slavery to mass incarceration like a lot of other people wouldn't. And he wasn't some super radical activist guy. You know, his son went on to be the 44th governor of Wisconsin. So these are pretty mainstream political people. And yet they were already advocating for prison abolition as early as the 70s. So that same year, Republican Congressman Stuart McKinney, he kind of wanted to see what all the fuss and all the talk was about. So he spent two days in a prison to research life behind bars. When he got out, he basically was like, shut this shit down. He said prison was, quote, a big waste of money and human life. He told reporters, quote, I can't see co-signing any human being to this kind of existence. And it only took him two days. It only took him two days. (laughs) So he was kind of a pioneer in what they do on reality TV today, going undercover and pretending you're supposed to be there in prison and having something to say about it afterward. Undercover boss. First (laughs) undercover boss. So if the ultimate goal is to keep our community safe, why are we doubling down on a system that has proven to be ineffective time and time again. The reality is, the last thing the current prison system aims to do is keep us safe. 
And so the question is, can we use our creativity, our ingenuity, our morality to come up with better ways, more effective ways of keeping us safe and of making people who've caused harm responsible for the harm they've caused? And the answer is yes. The great news is that there are communities all over the country uh, that are working on ways to resolve conflict, ways to help people in crisis that don't involve uh, calling the men with guns and batons, that don't respond to people's mental health issues by locking them in cages. We'll talk to one woman who's helping transform criminal justice after this break. I had been entrapped in the criminal justice system for almost two decades and was able to find some help in a wealthy neighborhood, the neighborhood of Santa Monica. What happened for me there was so much more humane than incarceration. I thought about all the women just like me who were traveling in and out of prisons, in and out of jails, struggling to make a life for themselves and figured if I duplicated what happened in Santa Monica here in South L.A., some women like me would have a chance to recreate their lives. That's Susan Burton again. Writer and prison abolitionist Michelle Alexander has called Susan a modern-day Harriet Tubman. After serving stints in prison herself, Susan entered a California program. It helped her get back on her feet. After that, she went on to help other incarcerated women find freedom and brighter tomorrows. She started a new way of life to help women find their footing after leaving prison. Like Paul, she sees the ways that our prison system seems more interested in punishment than rehabilitation, and she sees it as a sickness. Society has a major problem. It's almost like an illness around... um um, the use of force, I guess we say state-sanctioned killings. It has a problem around uh, wanting revenge and uh, wanting to punish to the place of over-punishment. It's like a deep, dark hole that will never be filled. Retribution has no point where it's capped off. You know, it's a deep, dark hole that yearns for more. And what we have here is a society that is uh, sick with revenge. I know myself from losing a child who was killed by law enforcement, that that need for revenge and to get back is something that cannot be filled. It cannot be satisfied. Uh, Instead, we should work towards rehabilitation, and forgiveness. Those are things that make people wholer and better. After the policeman killed my son, why didn't someone try to help me? Wasn't I worth a rehabilitation investment? Or were there only chains for me? Was there only cages for me? So we see this whole shift around the approach to addiction because white people are affected. While we call it a war on drugs, it's actually a war on people here in the United States. To think that 
for decades and decades and decades, we have punished people for a illness, punished black people, poor people for an illness. And then we get here to this point where there is an opioid epidemic. And the opioid epidemic is coming out of the medical industry. And it's sweeping across white America. And at this point, we're talking about rehabilitation. And I think about, you know, why wasn't there rehabilitation there for me? White people sell drugs at a 32% rate higher than black people do. Blacks are less likely to sell drugs and much more likely to be arrested for it. There seems to be a disparity between the number of black individuals that get incarcerated for drug-related crimes versus the number of white individuals who get incarcerated for drug-related crimes. Because of racial profiling and unfair sentencing, you become a target for law enforcement, especially if you're black or Latino or Asian or Native American. What I've come to know is that the United States approach to drug use is worse than the drug use. It's more destructive than the drug use itself. So for instance, you can take a mother with a couple of children and say she is using drugs to incarcerate her, break that family apart, uh, cost California $245,000 a year. And those children are snatched away from their mothers. The mother is caged like an animal instead of given support. Research has made it clear that fostering family ties is not only better for the children of people who are incarcerated, but it makes the incarcerated person less likely to reoffend. And research has also made clear that without actual support when they're released, people in prison will be more likely to return to prison. So why are we investing in models that continue to separate families? So there are systemic issues around uh, recidivism, the lack of people's ability to actually break through all of those barriers. The American Bar Association documented 48,000 barriers to reentry, a near impenetrable wall of no is what I call it. When you are pushed all the way out and pushed back based on the color of your skin and your past, and there's no opening for you to make a future, you're pushed back into a cycle. You're pushed out. And that is why we have such high recidivism rates. At A New Way of Life, we support people and help them to break through all those barriers. And therefore, we have a 4% recidivism rate versus a 60% recidivism rate in the state. And it goes to say, if you give people opportunity and support, they will overcome. Paul sees the same thing in his work, too. Why can't folks get health care? Why can't they get counseling? Why can't they get addiction treatment? Uh, Why can't they get job training? People say it's going to cost too much money. Well, prison's way more expensive. So prison isn't working. It's ineffective and expensive. So what do we do? Well, there actually is a solution. Abolish prisons. When I think about abolition, it doesn't mean we go to every prison in the country and let everybody out tomorrow. What we understand is that it's a process of gradual decarceration, 
where we start with, again, what I think are the easy cases, like the drug cases and other kinds of nonviolent crime. And we work our way through the system, again, with a focus on safety, with a focus on making sure that folks who are causing harm are going to get the kind of services that they need so that they don't cause harm anymore. Paul is careful to point out that under this model, if someone has done harm to someone else, they still face consequences for those actions. And just because they aren't doing so in prison doesn't mean it's going to be easy. Common Justice is one organization advocating for productive alternatives to prison. It uses restorative justice principles to hold perpetrators accountable and address the needs of victims instead of turning to incarceration as the only option. What they do in Common Justice is, first of all, have the person who's caused harm get the kind of help that he needs. So he's not going to hurt anybody again. Often that involves therapy, and involves treatment for addiction or for mental health disorders. It involves that dude getting in touch with themselves. And sometimes brothers who are in the middle of what might be a, a two-year therapy, a two-year being forced to confront your own demons, sometimes those brothers say, man, I wish I'd gone to jail because this stuff Just getting in touch with why I caused this harm. This is too hard. It works way better than prison. And the other thing they have to do is to make it up to the victim in a way that she feels whole, in a way that she feels, even though whatever this guy did to her, it can never be undone, in a way that she now feels respected and made as as whole as she can be. It sounds kind of like, you know, groovy, kumbaya, but guess what? It works. Uh, The people who've gone in this program, they're much less likely to reoffend. They're much less likely to hurt anybody than people who've been locked up in prison. And so we think now about not being tough on crime, We think about being smart on crime, and common justice points the way to being smart on crime, not locking up people and throwing away the key. America has to stop ignoring the fact that the prison systems don't protect Americans, that their goal has always been to keep marginalized folks detained and bar them from their rights as citizens. And Americans have to stop pretending incarceration is the best option and start truly caring about creating a better and safer country. Just because it's hard to imagine an America that prioritizes healing and treatment over exploitation and punishment doesn't mean that we shouldn't. Abolition is going to be difficult work. Abolition movements take a long time. Prison abolition doesn't mean that everybody gets to go home tomorrow, but it means that that's our vision. That's our goal. A world in which nobody is put in a cage like animals. Ultimately, Paul says it's important to remember that incarceration, over-policing, housing inequality, education, and all the issues we've talked about on Solution Sessions are interconnected. We should see them as symptoms of the virus that is white supremacy. You can't talk about the problem of black men being killed by the police in disproportionate numbers without also understanding that black girls get kicked out of school for disciplinary reasons way more than almost anybody else even though they don't present more problems. You can't think about those problems without thinking about the fact that the average net worth of a black woman is $100. 
of an unmarried black woman, 100 bucks, compared to the average net worth of a white man, $71,000. And that's related to eviction. Some people have said what mass incarceration is to black men, eviction is to black women. And so we have to think of all of these kind of as symptoms, again, of this larger disease of white supremacy. In 2014, we spent $80 billion just funding prisons. Now, if you pay taxes, that means that you, yes, you, personally spent about $260 of your money on locking people in cages. For what? The data says it doesn't make us any safer. The data says it doesn't make incarcerated people any less likely to return to prison. So what are we doing? And who are we making rich by doubling down on funding something we already know doesn't work? And while we're busy spending all that money on what we know doesn't work, what aren't we funding? What does it look like to dream of a new and better system? So why don't we have the courage, the integrity, to take care of our young black men rather than just kind of sending them down the assembly line to prison? And what message are we telling the 2.3 million people, a disproportionate number of whom are black, who we are locking up in cages? What are we telling them about their humanity? The most important thing that a person needs to know is that they are more than a prisoner and that they have purpose in their lives. They have possibilities in their future and they have to hang on to that and work towards it know that they're valuable, that they're not throwaway people. What's the solution, Bridget? Realize prisons are a part of a legacy of America subjugating black and brown people. What's the solution, Bridget? Recognize that mass incarceration does not work. What's the solution, Bridget? Advocate for alternatives to imprisonment. What's the solution, Bridget? Shut prisons down. Afropunk Solution Sessions is a co-production between Afropunk and How Stuff Works. Your hosts are Bridget Todd and Eves Jeffcoat. Executive co-producers are Julie Douglas, Jocelyn Cooper, and Quan Latif-Hill. Taylor Chicoin was our audio editor this week. Dylan Fagan is supervising producer and Kathleen Quillian is audio engineer. Many, many thanks to Casey Pegram and Annie Reese for their production and editorial oversight. And many thanks to our on-the-ground Atlanta crew, Ben Bolin, Corey Oliver, and Noel Brown. The Underside of Power is performed by Algiers. Connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Afropunks.